The wheel of time turns and ages come and go, leaving memories that become legend. Legend fades to myth, and even myth is long forgotten when the age that gave it birth comes again. In one age, called the Third Age by some, an age yet to come, an age long past, a wind rose in the mountains of mist. The wind was not the beginning. There are neither beginnings nor endings to the turning of the Wheel of Time. But it was a beginning. The Wheel of Time turns and podcasts come and go. Welcome to Wattcast, a Wheel of Time book and watch club. We are reading through Robert Jordan's epic fantasy series and watching Amazon's Wheel of Time TV show. I'm Caleb Wimble, and with me are Dan Katinsky. Hey, everyone. And a special slate of guests. We have Eric Rosoff here with us today. Hi, guys. And Andrew McGee. Hi. You can find us at Wattcast.net and support the show at Patreon.com slash Wattcast. Your support means a lot. Even $2 at the Two Rivers tier helps. Join us on Patreon at the $5 Tarvalon tier, and you'll get access to special bonus episodes. Email us questions, comments, and corrections via contact at wattcast.net with the subject line questions. We'll answer those here on the show. So, Andrew and Eric, welcome to the show. Great to have you here. Why don't you start by what's becoming our little tradition of uh, telling us your history of uh, history with The Wheel of Time or your relationship with the series? Uh, Andrew, we can go ahead and start with you. Okay. Um, I read the books in high school. Um, I'm 29, so that was quite a long time ago. Um, and I, I came to them because I had just, at at the time, I had just read every Shannara and um, Night oh. of the Word book. They have since eclipsed my, my like ability to keep up with them. There's so many of them. But like that was the first long-form uh, fantasy I had read post Lord of the Rings. And like I wanted something more mature. And people kept saying, like, you got to read The Wheel of Time. So I got into it uh, around when I was entering high school, and then I finished up when uh, Brandon Sanderson finished them. Oh, so you did make it through the whole series? I did, yeah. And I was I was pretty satisfied with uh, the way Sanderson kind of uh, executed Robert Jordan's notes. I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, that I I, I really enjoyed it. I thought I thought he did a great job coming in at the end. That was actually I think how I got turned on to Sanderson as a writer originally. Like I hadn't read Mistborn yeah. or, or anything like that. Um, yeah, same. And Eric, what about you? Uh, well, my partner Caleb created a podcast, <laughs> and that um, that inspired me to read the books. I'm currently um, I finished Eye of the World, and I'm in the first sort of I think quarter of The Great Hunt at this point. And I've of course been watching the show with Caleb. So you're getting firsthand the experience most of our regular uh, Wattcast careers on that, except a little bit ahead. Yeah, a little ahead of, of wherever you guys are with the books, anyway. Well, uh, as Dan can attest, we just wrapped up the Eye of the World after roughly, I, th- I want to say like two and a half months uh, we spent going through that one and then with our, our quick rush to the finish at the end. And it will be interesting to see how things stack up with the pacing this episode as we are only one episode away from the finale of this season, a season that wound up bringing in a lot more of the Great Hunt than I originally expected. And as we've mentioned a lot of times, a lot more of the uh, A New Spring prequel. So let's just get into it. Last time we talked about episode six of the Wheel of Time TV show, The Flame of Tarvalon. That's our party racing to get through the ways outside time and space to reach something called the Eye of the World before the Dark One can use it to break free of his 
Prism. I'm not sure we really know much of what the eye of the world is in the TV show yet. We really, really didn't learn <laughs> its exact nature until the very, very end of the book in those last couple chapters. And it confused the hell out of three quarters of our host in an episode that will be airing probably uh, several days before any of you hear this. Uh, it's about to go up. Um, but today we're talking about the next episode, episode seven uh, of the show, which is called The Dark Along the Ways, directed by Kieran Donnelly uh, and written by Amanda Kate Schumann with Rafe Judkins, as always, on the, you know, the co-writing credit and screen or showrunner for the whole thing. So we open within the ways, I believe that's the first scene, right? The gate has closed and Matt has been left behind. Yep, they just got in and they have an argument about Matt being left behind and there's a little drama that ensues. Oh, oh, wait, wait, I am totally wrong. I'm wrong, I'm wrong. That, that's where that's where our plot picks up. We actually open with uh, probably the yeah. single the single most oh, dramatic yeah. pregnancy ever put to film or, or <laughs> yeah. delivery ever. <laughs> How can we forget? <laughs> it's so crazy. Yeah. feelings that, so. about that scene. Okay, so for, for the listeners who I can't imagine many people are listening to our show episode ones who aren't also watching along, but just in case you're not, we open on a um, a, a sort of um, like leather and white cloth wrapped figure carrying a spear, a very clearly pregnant woman who I guess show readers will put together from what brief context they've gotten or show watchers rather might figure out right away that this is one of the Aiel and this is the Aiel war on the slopes of Dragon Mount. And she in particular is one of the maidens of the spear who... <laughs> Uh, she is on the verge of delivery on the side of this, uh, the slopes of this mountain in the middle of a pitched battle, catapults going ahead. Uh, she's having like contractions and, and groans, and then she's getting attacked by a whole bunch of guys in armor. And she's just going full, uh, I would say I'm blanking on his name. It's full 300. It's full. It's very Zack Snyder school of action cinematography with her leaping up in the air with these spears and the slow-mo cam and the grabbing one of the guys by his cloak in passing and the vroom, we get the <laughs> the bass note drop as her spear then goes into his head Ex extremely Zack Snyder actually uh, and I thought and one of the probably highest um fight difficulty uh, production value uh, special effects combination of things we've seen on the show so far yeah it reminded me a lot of uh I'll try to say this as obliquely as I can to avoid spoilers for people who like Game of Thrones, but it reminded me of Arthur Dane. Um, is that his name? Fighting multiple people at once with two swords and the sort of very balletic, dramatic fight that happened. I don't even and remember also, who, who who's that on Game of Thrones. Is that the, uh, the it character? It happens in the, the past. In Net, a young Ned Stark fights him with several other people. Right. Okay. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. And I also, it reminded me also of uh, The Incredibles when you mentioned she grabs someone's cape and uses that to <laughs> throw them to the ground. Yeah. I just heard yeah. Edna saying, no capes. Yes. Oh, <laughs> Keely in absentia. That was like as she's live tweeting on our Discord channel, she posted the, the Edna mode uh, gif <laughs> when she got, got to that scene. And he did, no capes. Yeah. I yeah. kind of felt like it was a missed opportunity, though, this scene, because I did I did like it. And I thought it was a really strong cold open to just see like a pregnant woman covered yeah. in blood negotiating a battlefield. But like they kind of undercut the gravity of it by having her do some kind of uh, exaggerated choreography. Didn't hate it. I just felt like 
it was it it was really um kind of fighting against itself trying to deliver a cool fight and a really emotional moment at the same time hmm. yeah I, I agree with that it went less realistic and it has the problem that all films or most films especially western ones a film and tv that tried to do large fights with one person fighting many people that if you pay i have to kind of ignore it but if you pay any attention to the people on the side <laughs> they're not supposed to be in focus they're always mm-hmm. just like flailing around and they would have they would have been effective if they were actually trying to do something. But it's like the the Star Wars um, Snoke's kind of uh, what's his his like his grand uh, office room or whatever that they're that Ray yeah. and um, Kylo Ren are fighting in. And if you oh, look, okay, okay. If it took, you look it took first, me a minute to remember. Which I, one I can't remember, remember yeah. what his room is meant. Yeah, the 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 second one in the new trilogy. And like if you look at the guards on the side when they're like in the middle, they're just mm-hmm. flailing around, not doing anything. And that happens so much. And you can't look at any of the side characters any of the the people not like any of the opponents that are not directly in the camera because they're never actually doing anything effective against the one individual but there's supposed to be this individual that's taking on like five other people and it doesn't yeah, yeah. It, it can't work because in reality you couldn't do that it just doesn't happen so it's well, hard to choreograph those sure sure definitely but that is kind of like all action cinema, right? At all, like any, any. I, I'm, I'm struggling to think of if you are going to have one person who has like kind of superhumanish abilities, it's going to wind up like that. And they do have her. There's a whole bunch of times where somebody is attacking her from behind at the same time somebody's attacking in front, and she just has these preternatural senses of she like breaks her spear in half at one point, so she or no, she has two spears, right? I yell. So she is like blocking a blade from behind her that she doesn't even see while she's stabbing somebody in the front at the same time. So they they do kind of do that. But I I wonder if some of the tension is we haven't seen anybody fight quite in this register in the show, right? We're sort of, we're escalating from fights that were more maybe, well, I, I guess I was going to say more Lord of the Ring-ish, but by Return of the Kings, Legolas is crowd surfing down an elephant while doing this <laughs> to, like, <laughs> to like 100 orcs at once. So so maybe not. Maybe this is like fully within like Lord of the Rings has room for Boromir kind of grittily uh, uh, you know, fight it like the orcs are coming kind of one at a time as he's sort of doing this, but also dying over the course of this. Actually, maybe this is more more in line with that scene, although he wasn't doing these balletic flips and leaps. Because what this has to do, remember, right, our, the viewers of the show who haven't read the book probably don't really know who Aiel are, or I've heard yeah. like almost nothing about the Aiel war at this point, right? Or why people are so terrified of Aiel. Yeah, yeah my husband needed to establish that. Yeah, my, my husband Josh was like, I hope she's not a regular human because this seems very implausible that a pregnant lady could be <laughs> fighting off like all these other guards at the same time and like while having contractions and everything everything so he was he was a little taken out of the moment because they didn't give any context to this they haven't indicated that Ayol are superhumans so he's like how is this woman doing this it, it, it didn't really yeah. line yeah. up for him at all so he was like very confused in the moment but he's like this I, is very well, hollywood I, she of course really... gets stabbed during one of her contractions yeah. eventually yeah. Mm-hmm. oh that was really that made like uh you know the feeling when all the blood leaves your legs when you see something that makes you physically uncomfortable Mm, and yeah. you're like, ah, yeah, that was a very cringy moment. In a good way, though, it made the scene effective. When somehow the baby didn't get stabbed, but like the angle made it look like mm-hmm. it went directly. Like I was confused by that because I was like, the baby really should have been affected by that, shouldn't it? Like yeah. the location yeah. of did, like where the blade went. Like yeah, and actually, I think like the whole scene sort of I think runs right into that question about Matt and and the sort of is it a creative decision that he's that he's leaving the cast? Is it a casting decision? I, mm. I, I mean the the time. I mean, the way that the the shot worked is uh, when it ended. The, the next sort of shot we had was of Matt, sort of the door closing on him. He of course has a dagger, um, 
that's pretty powerful. And she was stabbed by a dagger. I, I don't know if this is a coincidence, but it definitely raised the question in my mind if there's some sort of creative play there with the characters. And you know, in, in the book, mm. we know that we know that we know it's Rand who who's born in um, who's born in that context. Mm. Yeah, actually, I was even struggling to remember. Did, okay, so we get later in this episode flashbacks of Rand's learning of his birth circumstances from Tam in the fever state. Did we get none of that in episode one? Like, was there, we've had characters say Rand looks like an Aiel on the show. Like Loyal uh, was one of the ones who pointed that out when he met, met him and Rand is always flustered and like, no, no. But is this, is this the first episode the show lets us know that he was also a foundling like Nynaeve? Or what, did we get, the, get that the, established? His father talking to him in the woods wasn't in the first episode. That was only in this At one. All. So it was, it almost seemed yeah. like edited out for either time or just to kind of emphasize the reveal here. But yeah, it yeah. did make it seem abrupt. And I, I saw other critics thought the same thing that it just like, there's so many reveals this episode. And from the context of folks that are just watching the show without reading it, it could mm-hmm. be very confusing that they kind of keep doing flashbacks to stuff that seemed like they happened, but didn't. Like we didn't get that any of that context. Was there, um, did Tom make a comment about Aiel hair color to Matt in the, the scene where they, uh, they're cutting down and burying the Aiel in yeah. the mining town? Yep. That might have been the only other tease about Rand's uh, parentage. Yeah. Which, um, I, as you point out, Eric, we don't even find by the end of the scene. I guess it cuts this Aiel flashback off. And we don't even really know it's a flashback because uh, we it's not till mm. later, I think, that we see the uh, where da- Dan, speaking of some of like where your budget went in terms of this episode and the choreography, also in the, the CGI face tech of plastering <laughs> 60-something-year-old Michael uh, McElhatton's face onto whichever stand-in actor is playing the young version of him as Tam on the slopes of Dragon Mountain. Ooh, but I guess yeah, we'll that's, get... We'll, <laughs> that's a little weird. We'll, <laughs> we'll get there because we, we do, after our opening credits and intro sequence, we get into the ways. And like you said, Eric, all the drama initially is around Matt getting left behind or rather choosing to stay behind and, and seeing again the, the ways ceiling shut as he's out there. And immediately the party plunged into drama about whether to go back for him of which Moraine is having none at all. Mm-hmm. And of course, the surprising departure of the book. Yeah, yeah a, lot of, a lot of departures this episode. <laughs> Some big changes that, to the dynamic. Is, is there a known reason that they, they made that? Was that something like a, a, a shooting difficulty with, with quarantine that made them divide Matt from the group? Or was that purely to up the stakes? Well, I think we it's because don't he, know. Oh, you go. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, we're Am- about to say the same thing. Go ahead. Yeah, then. Amazon has not revealed the reasons. Neither the actor nor Amazon have revealed why Matt's recasted. I think uh, the recasting decision is now evidently being shown that it happened during production, is my assumption, mm-hmm. and that this episode and the next, uh, he got kind of booted off the show and that he's not going to be in the rest of well, the, the, the season to, one. To be clear, we don't, we don't, nobody has said he was booted off. They've all said that he departed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and nobody is, and, and nobody will say why, but also everyone only has praise for him on the casting crew when they talk about working with him in season one. Oh. So I'm gravitating towards some, I, I don't know, something deeply personal going on slash, I hope it's not, you know, terminal illness or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeesh. But but that, yeah. but that's what it, re, that's what it reminds me of in other productions in the past or of, you know, actors who have like, I don't know, it, it's, it's feeling to me like more like possibly like a Chad, Bo, Chad Bozeman situation in the last 
year and change. So I, I hope not. But but Jeez. we really but we really we have no facts whatsoever. This is something we've talked about on the show a couple of times that it's the most tight lipped I, I, that I could ever remember any production crew being about something like this. And, and there being no rumors, um, no, where there's rumors, no, no, nobody has leaked anything as far as I know. And every and everybody is being very, um, yeah, the for whatever reason, they're being silent. They're they're being silent on, on this subject. But, but what is we it do at know, least possible that it's a creative decision? It's possible, yeah. But we, and I'm almost wondering that in this episode, even but, though it does usually. Too, yeah. But to that point, though, usually it's almost feeling like an NDA or medical reason, as Caleb just listed, which I didn't think of. Yeah, that would be really sad. But like, it's very much like an NDA where neither the production or the crew are saying anything, and, and no news outlets have any facts about it. Everyone's just talking about the departure with no no background. So usually, if it's a creative decision, the the producers or directors are like fine talking about it, and explaining the rationale behind yeah, it. Like even Sense Eight had more like when they recast uh, Kafias, they had much more dialogue as to what happened and people. People had background as to like why the um, the actor departed the show, but this we Wait, haven't which actor? anything. Which I, uh, I, I the, the bus driver in Sense Eight when they recast him between seasons one and oh, two. Oh yeah, yeah. There was more background on that, but we haven't gotten anything yeah. for this show. Right, that was one of those more clear cut. Did not agree with the directors on their vision. Did not get along personally with with them, kind of thing. Right where yeah, we sort of have yeah. But uh, yeah. Speaking speaking of dissent among the ranks within the show itself here. So for for whatever the external reason. Matt is disappearing here. It is immediately the the main source of tension uh, with with the group and wanting to go back for him. And I do like what they're doing with this plot twist that we see with Moraine throughout this episode where this is, I think, I really like this justification she's coming to that if Matt is the dragon, because she still doesn't know which of the which of the five Two Rivers folks are the dragon reborn, she doesn't want him anywhere near the dark one because she believes he will turn to turn to him like that there's something in him that and whether it's the daggers corruption she actually said she indicates that she thinks it's something innate in this episode which was an interesting choice uh, i don't really know what to make of that uh, but she's not she's not telling that to any of the two rivers folks here this is actually maybe the episode where we see her the she's gotten more duplicitous every episode the last couple of episodes right hiding things from the group and and unrevealed intentions and what she's actually planning to do about matt once they get to faldara here Mm -hmm. yeah i was i don't know if did i miss this but did they give rationale as to why the dragon has to go to the eye of the world i know they they're all like a lot of the the tension this episode is from the 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 fact that only the the actual dragon reborn will survive but what is Mm -hmm. so that so that's why they all have to go because they don't know but then like the others die and they haven't really explained why that happens like Mm -hmm. and how do they know the dark lord's gonna be there they keep acting like they're facing the dark lord and he's gonna be at the eye of the world but i thought they're trying to get there before him to either guarded or mm-hmm. like take it away from the spot it's, I don't know they haven't really given much context so, in the show they did but it was with it a lot of expedition exposition in the last episode so the quick recap version something we talked about on on last week's show episode was that they reversed the dark one's position here in the book the dark one is at his most powerful yet and is almost about a, ever to, able to break through the seal on his prison enough to reach the eye of the world and to take its power for himself and break out and use that power of whatever the eye is to break free from his prison. Moraine said last week on the show, he is at his weakest he has ever been. Uh, 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 and I forget, <laughs> forget quite how she and Swan get to that, but she said that he's at the weakest he's ever been. This is the only chance they will ever have to strike and destroy him. Uh, and so from her perspective, they're going to where his prison is weakest, uh, where, where, where the seal is in the physical world at Shio Ghoul and the eye of the world 
world is right outside that. And she wants to have the dragon use its power to, I think she flat out says, not just seal away, but destroy the Dark One, according to her understanding of prophecy, which is um, maybe not the same understanding of prophecy that we've been given in Eye of the World, the book. I think, though, it's been a while since I read the Eye of the World, since it's the first one. But as I remember, even even uh, Rand, as he's making plans isn't clear on whether or not the end goal should be to destroy the Dark One, as I remember it. Because every, obviously everyone, when you think of like, how do we deal with evil incarnate, destroying it outright would probably be most people's knee-jerk reaction and plan A. So I kind of like that that's, that's where they're going for is, they're like, yeah, if we mm-hmm. have a chance to destroy evil incarnate, we should. Um, I think that was everyone's first uh, reaction. Is it, do we think it's an attempt to change? Because so in the books, him being like trapped in a prison and everything, is it, are the showrunners just worried it's too similar of a plot line to Lord of the Rings being like um, Sauron being in Kate? Like, like they always seem to have this trope in fantasy where the Dark One's kind of in a prison and trying to get out mm-hmm. and like slowly seeping out as the series goes on. So uh, making him like this is his weakest moment and doing that reverse, is that to kind of make it uh, differentiate it from like other series like Lord of the Rings? Like not being encased Uh, in like a prison that they have to like seal up. I I think he's still going to be. I don't think they're actually changing that is my guess. What we've seen so far this season and with the setup with the the Forsaken two episodes ago, getting uh, reminded of their concept. I don't know that they're going to, like you're suggesting they might have the Dark One fully escape at the end, at the end of the season instead of what happens in Eye of the World, the novel at the end. Well, well or, you're saying it's the reverse in that. So in the the sh- in the book, he's at his most powerful and about to break out. Or mm-hmm. and then in here, he's at his weakest. It, so they're going to strike him and kill him. But if he's contained, then why do they have to kill him in the container? Why did they do that earlier? Oh, oh, well, because she says he's going to get stronger and he's going to get out eventually. But what's is... the rationale though? Oh well, they didn't. They didn't kill him the the first time he was sealed inside. Is because yeah. whoever did the sealing was not capable at that time of destroying them, even though that was everyone's desire. Mm-hmm. So they sealed him away in the strongest material that they at the time were capable of conceiving. I won't mention it, I guess, because spoilers. <laughs> but yeah, but he has a he has a prison and he's contained simply because they couldn't kill him. And her rationale in the show apparently is maybe we can finish the job that the people mm-hmm. who sealed him away we're not capable of prosecuting to its to its logical conclusion but I'm, but i'm confused though because if he's been in this prison then why did they and the eye of the world's been kind of a known fact it's not like it was just discovered like it's been around because on, only the dragon reborn can use it yeah okay so that's where the t- okay that connects the dots then because then they is, have to get, mm-hmm. get him that that's what she she, she has said that, yeah, yeah, in the, in the show. we In the Eye of the World, the book, we know that only male channelers can access it because it's pure Sayadine. Like, it's it's a concentrated reserve of the male half of the One Power untouched by the Dark One's corruption. That's that's all stuff that we learned in the last couple of chapters that we, we talked about. Um, but but keep, I think the yeah, show has like, said the dragon, maybe. <laughs> they, they keep changing who can do things, like kind of like the ways and yeah. who can navigate that. And just yes, some of it becomes yeah. kind of weird, like Moraine activating the ways when it's supposed to be for like Loyal and uh, Ogier to kind of navigate and travel through. And it was a gift to them. So sometimes yeah, this like, when be, they change. Yeah, yeah. yeah, they also changed. They can't seem to make up their mind about whether men can see women channeling and vice versa because they establish hmm. verbally that women can't see men channeling but then they have uh Loghain becoming uh awestruck when he sees uh Nynaeve channel for the first time 
Wait, so shit. apparently when he, do they say he, that? Well, uh, well, he sees the he sees the effects of what she does. I think is but what the we're thing given is, though, to understand. The thing is, though, they use a visual metaphor in yes. that scene where it said she, the dragon will be like a raging sun, and then visually on screen we see mm-hmm. this blinding flash of light, and his eyes goes wide goes yeah. wide, and he says like a raging mm-hmm. sun, which is not something I would if I saw a bunch of people be miraculously healed. I don't know <laughs> if I would liken it to the sun. Although mm. maybe maybe they're just trying to say like he immediately in his mind understands the power requisite to do something like that. That was a very confusing way of doing it, wasn't it? Because I think that they've been trying to stick to the camera perspective thing that, um, for instance, um, we don't see who on on the ways does the blast of air that throws the Trolloc who appears off the edge, much like the orc on the bridge of uh, the first area of Moria here. It's that we're extremely, we're extremely Khazad doomed this episode. Um, Yeah. Speaking of differentiating. Yeah. yeah. And we, and we assume it's a Gwen as viewers. uh, And and I certainly did too. I didn't, I I, I had no inclination that it, well, I guess I thought it was Moraine until even even she assumed. Yeah. Yeah. Until she, she she takes credit for it, um, but uh, yeah. So the camera is in a tricky task here of letting us see it sometimes. Like they don't want us to miss out on all these things, I guess. Usually, but even that, lo- like you said, that Logain scene because we just cut to his face and back. It does make it seem like he can see the glowing of something that we know is invi- like healing is invisible when it happens to other people. Like they see yeah. the body knitting back together, but they don't see glowing trails of light. Uh, though we see a lot of big flashing lights uh, throughout the secret sequence as. Um, we make through the ways pretty quickly. The, they through the episode being called "The Dark Law on the Ways." I assumed we would spend most of our time here, but it's maybe ten minutes. I want to say um, before we're found and fleeing from Trollocs who are in here somehow, and then uh, we think Egwene does a blast of the power, at which is going to draw um, Machin Shin, or which the show is pronouncing Machin Shin, the uh, the Black Wind. Um, which is some sort of evil that's grown within the ways. We don't get as much detail about it in the show. So, you know, parties running through, pursued by Trollocs, pursued by the wind. The wind comes around them. And here, rather than being something that disintegrates and or eats them alive, uh, kind of the impression I had of it in, in the book, it's um, it's one of those uh, unlock your deepest fears slash tell you the darkest truth that you don't want to hear things uh, and it's uh, getting in everybody's heads and they're all acting very very agonized by this as Nynaeve burst with power once again to try and shield them all long enough that Moraine can work the way gate to get them out of here uh, and, and out of the ways yeah I was I was not entirely fond of that interpretation I know in the book the very few people who have survived near encounters with it described being spoken to but yes, that's usually yeah. something that heralds its proximity to you that mm-hmm. you know it's coming because you become you begin to get taunted um and and like i think it's, if i can remember its effect is not unlike getting uh hit by a dementor where like your your mm. soul is gone if it gets you so I, I understand why they did it though but i feel like yeah. a little underwhelming to to say like all it's doing is 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 kind of ta- talking to them like yeah. post quarantine we're all in touch with our deepest <laughs> innermost thoughts so i feel like i would not react to that yeah i, I the whole 
for emphasizing like the wave so much and putting the like leading up to it and then making it seem like it's going to be a big deal and then getting through it in like 20 minutes maybe at most um and mm-hmm. that's being generous i don't even think it is 20 minutes i don't wheel of time the show keeps like shying away from actually enjoying itself and having action moments like it had that great like they they at least indulge with the opening shot of like the pregnant um mother fighting and everything but after, after that scene with that woman it's like they spend so little time here and then so much of the episode dialogue coming up for like 40 minutes minutes of it it's just like it's disappointing because you could have like when they found out the um, the trollocs are there i thought it could be a fun mm-hmm. moria moment where they're fighting them the cast is like kind of killing them off you get one and that's the only one you see yeah. and then they run and then like the bats or whatever the whatever they their interpretation of like the the fog is it's little like, little black stones or something i'm not even yeah, sure they're whatever like they flags, were like but... little particles or whatever just like taunt them to andrew's point it's like it just makes them feel sad or like like breaks their confidence down it doesn't even like eat them or do anything else it's like it's not draining them it's like it doesn't it doesn't quite sell the soul the soul crushing thing it needed to be more heightened right like more more sense of that it's destroying their mind in some other way beyond just whispering uh the, the ugly truth to them yeah um i do like though one thing i think that scene set up effectively was that when they get out they're all sweaty and panting and emotionally Mm -hmm. drained and then later when you see pat and fane just Mm. swagger out of the way gate like he's just been in and out of a trader (laughs) joe's is i thought that was kind of cool even though i think they've underserved foreshadowing him sufficiently Mm -hmm. so far i thought that was a great moment when you just see him walk out just whistling without a care in the world yeah huge question there go ahead dan no i just i I, I agree with Andrew. I think that was like a good shot and fun personality given to his character. Yeah, which is very, very different from how he appears in the books at this point, where he is yes. so he's he's Gollum by this point in the in the eyes of the world, <laughs> and he's just raving and filthy and desperate and starving and and just awful. Uh, but 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 I'm totally down with this change of direction. Yes, uh, and I really like that that shot that you that you talked about and, and the sense of him coming in. I like all this stuff throughout this episode. I do want to know: Can he channel in the show? Because because we just established in two episodes very clearly that only a channeler can operate the waygates in this universe, and it takes Moraine opening and closing it at great effort while while Machin or Machinchin is attacking them there, and she seals it off, and le- they leave. And then a scene later, we see Pat and Fane sauntering out all on his lonesome. Is he now a channeler in this version? Or is this something where he maybe has the the other power that he may have access to has given him some other way <laughs> to uh, uh It's a good point that... Wait, so do, they, do they really say that you have to channel to be able to open the way in gates the show, in think. the show? Yeah, like, they have Moraine mm-hmm. do it. Well, mm-hmm. they have Moraine yeah, do it, but yeah. do they say that's the only way to do it? Because if they do, that really limits the options. I don't. I haven't read more than just the first book, but like that limits the options of who can enter and exit the way gates. I, yeah, I was very surprised by it. We talked about this because I'm like, wait a minute. The ways were built for for the Ogier. They were a gift to the Ogier yeah. who expressly cannot channel and they have, you know, they live on yeah, steady. It's a plot device. And, and and you usually you operate them in the books by manipulating the um the the carving and moving like a little bit of the carving to the correct part of it. It's like a puzzle yeah. sequence again sort of, you know, Gates of Moria thing. Uh, if you if you know it's e- it's supposed to be easy. Um but yeah, but it really does change it if cuz Moraine has to do a very complicated weave of spirit it seems every time to get the thing open. But yeah, maybe there maybe there's another way and she cuz we're just not privy to it. At I think we're getting a, a first-hand understanding of, of why Robert Jordan needed um, his wife so badly to, uh, to help him <laughs> keep track yeah. of all this shit. <laughs> yeah, Speaking of um, contrast with uh, with Thane's put-together appearance is how 
Moraine comes out of here looking, like you said, Andrew, the most haggard we've ever seen her, like the redness around her eyes and her hair, it, which has always been, I've, I've noticed maybe last episode in this one, which was always so put together and so, um, you know, almost as elaborately done as as the Two Rivers folks. It's getting uh, more and more frayed and she is not taking time to comb every morning. That's like a theme throughout this episode, especially, it seems like we're seeing Moraine look much more unkempt and, and sort of frenzied looking than she ever normally does, which is interesting given where we get by the end of the episode and um, and what's changing about her as a character here, what, what she discovers about herself. We get into Faldara, which I thought that was a pretty cool model they have for the city here on the edge of the wasteland. Uh, we get like a sequence going up the bridge. It, it pretty it's it's different from how I've pictured Faldar in the books, but uh, but I'm down with the vision they have here, which uh, reminds me of you know various ancient uh, ancient Chinese fortresses and also hints of almost this like Akkadian style, like vaguely Babylonian parts of the architecture yeah. they've got going on here. Pretty cool. But we get into the court. Wait, wait before that, though, with the location, though. Yep. I always I thought from the book it was like up, especially with the location on the map in the book that it was like up north and that was like almost snowing or felt like a kind it is. Of a cold fortress but that felt very yeah. desert like south versus a northern location so i didn't i don't know that seemed like a departure from like a northern tribe yeah they, they've remember we, we've talked about how they've like sort of done away with the whole winter thing in general and the whole the major theme of the eye of the world that winter is lingering much longer than it should be and everything is covered in snow i think for fairly obvious reasons though is, again, <laughs> yeah. to differentiate yourself from the other epic fantasy on the uh-huh. market one of which was very much winter themed yeah i get it and they've also changed the nature of like the the border with the blight here because in the book you know they have to they they it's a two days ride to the eye and and they very grad the, the landscape transitions gradually here we find out by the end of the episode like you walk two steps out of Faldara and there's just a lot there's a border <laughs> here is the blight begins here it is plant hell and this is uh <laughs> this is where you enter and we do know that the blight is really hot and and um almost like this really um mix of acrid desert portions and tropical portions like it's a really weird alien landscape of hot regions that may so maybe they're just having that pour down into faldara i guess that's the show's way of trying to show us how much the blight is creeping south and growing rapidly because they certainly don't communicate that with their version of lord agomar uh, who shows up very briefly to be uh, an aggressive asshole about yeah. the mm-hmm. uh, about Moraine's arrival and to be like, we don't need your help. We stand on our own. The complete opposite of, of his character in the books. But yeah. this subplot doesn't go anywhere in this episode. Maybe it will next episode because he just sort of drops it once he realizes that and Moraine reveals that they're here to, um, you know, they, they're on a different quest. They're not here to take over his war with the, tro- <laughs> with the Trollocs. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Fight fight the damn White Walkers your own self here. Because, uh, you know, in the book, again, he's like, uh, speaking of the he's Game of Thrones helpful, connections. Yeah. yeah and, and he's like the watch. He wants more people desperately to help fight here. It's like, we're dying. We're losing this war. The blight is coming farther south. And the biggest army of Trollocs in a couple generations is is pouring down here here he's like leave us alone we, we can handle this and then his uh is it his um sister who's the more rational one here lady amelisa jagad who i believe is a, a yet another great hunt character that we haven't met in the eye of the world 
Yeah. Uh, yeah from the sh- I, I don't recognize her at all, but she seems to be like a channeler that wasn't strong enough to become an Aes Sedai is kind of the gist mm-hmm. the show gives. But to the to the point with the king, it seems they constantly seem to be trying to make it feel more Game of Thronesy with like all all this like throne and like Aes Sedai like political drama to like stir things up, even with characters that are supposed to be friendly or on good terms, but just trying to make it seem like more hostile politics. When like he was so helpful to them in the book and I really liked his character. It's like such a 180 departure from his characterization. So, and he's yeah he's just a prick in here he's not likable at all so I, I don't know I'm not really liking yeah. what they're doing with him and his uh, fortress palace I understand kind of why they do that with a lot of shows now is that a, a lot of really good shows recently have explored like just all the different shades of hostility like I know you're a fan of Succession and like people, <laughs> people you can't help but, but watch it and, and be like man what can I do to my project to make it more like this because there is a certain pleasure in seeing all these people just constantly at war with each other but I do mm. prefer from the books how it's it's got that same sort of like no, noble tragedy of Gondor where like the whole rest of the world enjoys mm-hmm. standing in Gondor's shadow as Gondor absorbs the repeated attacks from Mor- Mordor but like if you're yeah. in the two rivers you don't even realize that's happening it's completely out of sight out of mind and you don't even know right. what you should be grateful for and there's a mm-hmm. resentment yeah yeah that's such a cool concept and it didn't yeah. the show didn't give any indication that they felt that way that they're like the rejected like they're they're at the brink of like this power coming in and like kind of taking over and they're the ones holding it back but you don't really get that vibe that they're doing that though yeah yeah i really liked the welcome in the book to, mm. to the crew and i think they, they kind of i was disappointed that it was so different in the show yeah it's like hostile without like any kind of indication mm-hmm. as to why it's hostile and it doesn't have like the interesting complexities of gondor and kind of like the bitterness they feel they're just kind of <laughs> he's just an asshole without like a lot of explanation as to why i think i think actually now that i'm kind of trying to re-examine exactly what he says i think they're trying to portray him as being hostile specifically to the Aes Sedai. yes yes not to the world in general which is something that you see echoed more and more like it, and they even they even mentioned um uh when they have Loghain c- trying to provoke the Amerlin into having him executed how he says mm-hmm. how their reputation is failing across yeah. the entire world and maybe they're just trying to hammer home the point that like yes they're they're an institution but th- there's resentment growing in every corner even people who objectively speaking do need them mm. Yeah, that, that that makes a lot of sense and seems to be related to where they're going. The show is go- rushing us so much faster into the book's complication of the Aes Sedai. I think it was maybe, uh, somebody was talking about this on our on our last episode, that because Moraine is our only real insight into, in, in the eye of the world, we meet two Aes Sedai. We meet Moraine, and for one scene, we meet Elida. And Elida is, you know, an imperious asshole, but she's a red Aja, and we're sort of given throughout the book. They're the only Aja we know anything about that they're kind of given to... Um, being the being the asshole cops of the Aes Sedai and the ones <laughs> in the the Misandry Aja, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but we're getting earlier in the show here what you were talking about, Andrew. This awareness of the the political institution of the tower, its internal workings, and how the rest of the world thinks about them, and increasingly both uh, both resents their influence, even as their influence is failing and as their power is gradually failing, as uh, Loghain points to. Because it, it it also that that understanding that dynamic is crucial to understanding why anybody in their right mind tolerates the children of light 
because mm. when you see them in the show so far, <laughs> I've had people ask me like, why do they exist? Why yes. why does anybody put up with them? And the the answer is basically like they are in many people's mind the the alternative to another oppressive power that can't be trusted. Yeah, like the ones kind of holding them back or keeping them in check. Yeah, it's very much get... the Godzilla let them fight meme. <laughs> mm. They also seem to have like a superpower of like conversational cornering and aggression where they kind of just sort of somehow make you feel like you've done something wrong just by like stepping in front of them wait we're talking about the white cloaks or the eyes to die now? yeah the, the white cloaks oh, oh yeah <laughs> i think people are afraid of them yeah. yeah and they almost seemed like i didn't get this strong impression in the books that they were very intimidating or had like a lot of power themselves but in the show even uh, mm. moraine seems a little intimidated by them whereas in the book she seems to walk all over them when she's around like they have no competition to her but in the show he's like collecting them like it's bounties or whatever and mm-hmm. he's got like a bunch of their rings and she's like working like the scene where they're they're meeting up on horses she seems kind of intimidated by him but in the book i remember specifically when they do have moraine in their party she just like tramples all over them and they easily get away from the white cloaks granted it's only like five of them in that scene yeah yeah Yeah. i think they're just reflecting as the books go on the balance of power becomes even more asymmetrical because the ace that i are they're they're handling real problems and the white cloaks don't have to deal with any of that their their job is to <laughs> harass the Aes Sedai while the Aes Sedai actually have real things to deal with they I, th- I feel like the white cloaks do sometimes probably get real dark friends but it's probably because they just, <laughs> they just yeah. accuse everyone who seems remotely yeah. suspicious to them and everyone's like, ex- execute 50 innocent townspeople maybe kill a dark friend or two along yeah. <laughs> along the way occasionally show up late to a battle with actual trollocs yeah right. <laughs> uh so speaking of the tower politics we get we get moraine scheming a, a little bit here slash catching up with lady amalisa afterward down the hall um and it, it's catching us up on some things about the situation here about amalisa's background like you said dan her her uh, couldn't didn't quite cut it as an Aes Sedai because it turns out if you don't if you're not powerful enough you're not allowed to get the full serpent ring she has like this partial <laughs> partial serpent ring thing going on miss, missing the gem uh but main take biggest takeaway from the scene out of several is Moraine's intention for Matt, which she is having Amelisa send a message to Tar Valen to go pick up Matt outside the way gates. And Amelisa's like, okay, what should, what should the message say if if I'm going to do this? Begrudgingly. And Moraine's like, or who should I address this to? So that's Amelisa. And Moraine's like, the Red Aja. And that's, you just know, like she, at this point is fully sold on Matt as a problem that needs to be eliminated from the board, whether he's the dragon reborn or not he needs to be neutralized yeah what did what did everyone think of that because it, it seemed pretty dark to me it's pretty dark yeah. but i'm i it, it kind of answers the earlier question of if separating matt was a creative decision and whether or not it was it it certainly has afforded them creative yeah. opportunities because matt yeah. is my favorite character flat out from the entire series but it does take quite a long time for matt to compete mm-hmm. with your for your attention with perrin and rand um and huh. giving matt this this complexity of, of stuff that's happening to him um is def- definitely gonna give them stuff to do with matt in the next season that probably might not have existed so a little yeah bit of a happy happy event there sounds like you know more than i do about his future so <laughs> but i i'm excited to see what what happens hopefully he doesn't hopefully the actor is not dying and that yeah you know, maybe maybe it is a creative decision yeah, we've this kind of ties back to our discussion last week's episode where um, we're talking about how Matt has so little to do in the finale of the first book where like they mm-hmm. he and Perrin almost feel like and Keely was talking about this a lot where they just kind of feel tagged on and they don't really serve yeah. much of a purpose in the final confrontation and the climax. So they're maybe they're, they're yeah, they're peanut gallery along with even like 
Egwene and uh, Nynaeve don't seem to do much. And I know uh, Keely's been like really pushing for like the whole powers combined situation in the show. Mm-hmm. And that's that's her bet. And I'm starting to side with her a lot that they'll have to like all channel together and it'll be like a Captain Planet moment. Um, but <laughs> it's yeah, it almost seems to that point that getting Matt out of there and giving him something to do and giving him this dark twist and like everyone knows Matt, like even if you haven't read all the books, so it's like everyone seems to love Matt. And that's like one of the things I knew about Wheel of Time going into the books. So it seems like they're trying to set up for that early to Andrew's point. And, and also with Perrin trying to keep the wolf stuff going, try hopefully mm-hmm. give him more to do because Perrin also has so little to do in the final sections of the book. So hopefully hopefully they can kind of tie that in a little more and in the next episode uh, kind of deal with that better. We get to the market stall scenes right after this, is which is where Perrin with... Uh... With his tell me what your wolf eye see parent here for the second time in this episode, spot something that no, nobody else does, which is Padden Fane. Right. Oh, he also was he he was the one who spotted the Trollock in the ways or he mm-hmm. spotted something yes. in the ways. He yeah. So we're getting the, the defaced uh, guide stone. I right. Believe. Yes. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah gleaming in the distance so he, he spots Pat and Fane turns the others onto this and they're like well that's weird if true uh, maybe <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, but then we kind of move on because they don't really know at this point and, and um, somebody says something close enough to rem- it's such a blatant audience hey remember the last time Pat and Fane showed up with those Trollocs and like no he definitely died in that attack right kind of thing there making sure that the audience is drawing the link because the season so far has not really done much yeah um, to highlight him, although we have pointed out apparently he is in the background very subtly of a few episodes. And then we finally, speaking of characters who I had give, given up on their appearance from the book, even showing up, Min arrives uh, mm-hmm. better late than never. They moved her from Berlin to... Uh, to Faldara, she's the one that Moraine is looking for, that she has uh, known Min's whole life, finds her in the bar, and is getting her readings. I liked how they visualized her visions. I thought that was, well, that was kind of tautological. I liked how they visualized visions. <laughs> but I thought that was pretty well done. It was kind of cool how they appeared as like these sort of double images over the live person. Uh, I thought that was kind of cool. In a, in a series that is kind of like, not to rag on it, because I know this is, it's so difficult to do this kind of thing for TV, but like some of the yep. special effects have been a little bit of a letdown. I felt that these were appropriately restrained and mm-hmm. like just low key enough that you can imagine somebody living functionally and in a society and doing a job every day while being bombarded with this. So it's yeah, like not we, so that, disruptive. Yeah. Yeah, that that description's really good because we were talking about that in the the books when we got to that section of like how does she function in society mm-hmm. or even like perform daily tasks because she's constantly having these like what sound like super intense visions around people and they didn't Jordan doesn't really describe whether or not it's like in her head or if it's kind of like overlaid on top of what she sees every day or like if it's like behind them it's it's kind of like left to the the reader's uh, discretion and we even get the sense from the visuals we see that these are not complete like we're, we're seeing like little fleeting impressions that she sort of draws from because we'll see we'll see like of the vague imprint around one of them or or the or you know parents face sort of twisting or we'll see the little sparkling stars and then she's able to draw much broader inferences like they they still have more meaning to her that she can explain a dialogue beyond the brief visual that we see of each of them. Um, what do we think of Min as a personality here? I feel I feel like uh, immediately she is she's different, or at least her relationship with Moraine is different and and more a little more hostile. And Moraine is a little more, even though you get the sense they've known each other forever. Moraine slightly threatens her about like revealing her secret. It seems like a tacit threat. But it's like you know you know the White Tower is keeping we're keeping your identity under wraps, man. You could be hunted or worse if 
if people knew what you were and what you're capable of in this moment uh, to get to get in order to get her to give these visions. Whereas we see them, I think, more in a more friendly light in Berlin in the eye of the world. But uh, even though we're mostly seeing it from Rand's perspective, then I think I may be misremembering also, but I like how they make her by and large unimpressed with Rand at, uh, mm-hmm. upon their first meeting, <laughs> um, which is something like uh, it, it's kind of refreshing because I really love the books. But sometimes when when people of import meet in the books, there's mm-hmm. usually like some fawning or or like terrified awe in one quarter and just seeing her be like, dude, what do you want? It was very, <laughs> yeah. it, it was kind of cool. She's like, I get it. Destiny, all that good stuff. Do you actually want to know this or are you wasting my time? Yeah, that was a good scene. I don't I don't know if it would destroy a future plot, but I, I thought that it was um, a missed opportunity for a genderqueer character, given that yeah. she's described as being oh, yeah. so... Um, it definitely would have kicked queer. up a fuss yeah. from the neckbeards, the but book. I would have, I would have liked it. Oh, I forgot about that because they have that whole we yeah. were like mocking the way the book handles it, where they kept being like, you couldn't tell, like the way they were framing it for Rand because he's so immature and just like, like sheltered. Like mm-hmm. they kept what was like the phrasing Jordan kept using, like he couldn't tell if it was like a man or a woman or something like that. Yeah, like, yeah. Which is not something that we get in this. I was a little disappointed by that as well. I'm not disappointed with the performance. It's a uh, Kay Alexander. I don't don't think we have named her yet. Um, and I really I really like the way that she's playing men in the scene. But yeah, she's in makeup. She's got earrings on. She's got her hair back. She's not like she's not dressed like a princess or anything. But she is still presenting like obviously feminine here yeah. in in the show and wearing. And she has like this low cut like like women's. Um, halter top kind of thing going on or, or or something like like that and she has like a rough rough look to her sort of but more more just like that you know the edgy edgy um tattoo bar uh bartender kind of person i did i was also disappointed like eric said uh, about um missing the opportunity to lean into the fact that yeah uh, she has as described in i the world uh, wears men's clothing in a men's fashion has a men's haircut and the male perspective character is literally not certain uh, of gender upon upon seeing uh, men and is you know flustered by it because Rand's the the you know small town sheep farmer who's never seen anything in his life outside the the same twenty two people. Min's entire her aesthetic strongly reminds me of Belters from the Expanse, especially mm. and her and and Siwan as well have these very geometric tattoos. Immediately <laughs> reminded me of a lot of oh, the yeah. ink work you see on Belters. I wonder, huh. especially since Amazon owns that show, I wonder some of the staff, <laughs> like some of the creative team actually worked on this and there was like overlap there because you're, you're right, definitely belter, persona, like tattoos and clothing and personality. So we get the confirmation of the prophecies here at the here at the bar. They're you know they're they're even more vague than the ones that Min gives in Eye of the World, honestly. Uh, and I don't know that they're revealing much that the viewer probably doesn't know by this point. Uh, you know, they're 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 we, we the main gist is that these are really important for really important people. They're Taverin. They're super connected, and Min's able to tell that they have like a huge impact on the pattern. She can't discern which one is the dragon reborn by looking at them necessarily, uh, and. And the 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 group themselves are pretty suspicious of this interaction when they get back we get the scene that has the most angsty teen drama from the novel of anything in the show so far condensed into one scene of everybody it's a mixture of like naive is biting back at moraine in a pretty understandable way like i, I really like the way the show is handling their their budding of personalities and the way naive is pushing like no you're still not being honest with us tell us what is going on be you've been lying uh, to us every step of the way without lying and yet you 
expect us to throw our lives away for, for this thing. You've got to be clear here and we'll make the decision for ourselves. But then while that's going on with Nynaeve confronting Moraine in this moment about whether they're all going to go to the eye of the world, if it means that three quarters of them will die and only the dragon reborn will live, which Moraine seems weirdly certain of. Then the other, the, the younger ones start arguing because... It comes out that uh, Rand realizes that Perrin has some feelings for Egwene and all the sort of like jealous um, kind of, you know, we talked about like the, the middle school tensions uh, from the eye of the world really come out in the, in the drama throughout this scene here, getting getting pretty petty and possessive with each other. I, do, I don't remember if there was any anything between Perrin and Egwene from the book. Um, it's long enough ago. Is that something that's in eye of the world or is that something that's completely like I, I, I kind of gathered from that scene that it was almost like a delayed reaction to what they heard mm-hmm. from the wind taunting them. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Um, no, I don't think I don't I don't think I picked up on any Perrin Egwene in the book, yeah. like in terms of having feeling. But the show seems to make that can like that seems to be the case here, right? Like it seems like I don't know, Perrin's expression seems to admit that's true to some extent here. Uh and it seems like from the dialogue of the characters that he does, although things do get patched up sort of with Egwene and Rantier mm. pretty quickly. It seemed the yeah, they scenes. I was wondering if they were gonna build on that. I didn't want to read too much into it because they can totally see their like friends and everything, but I didn't know if they were gonna go that route and it seems like they are leaning into it a little bit when before they meet the tinkers and they're in the, when they first get separated in that episode mm-hmm. and like the one after, they they seem to kind of connect some bonds there with Perrin, kind of having a connection with uh Egwene. But I, I thought it was more of like almost like a, a sibling kind of bond or like yeah. good friends. But it seems that's what like I thought at the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah but th- so there's too. a hint of yeah. I, I sort of got a hint that they could lead that to Perrin actually does care about her because I think in the first episode there was this kind of strange scene. I don't remember very well now where there was like almost a uh, like Perrin didn't want to go into the blacksmithy um, area and work with his wife. Like he wanted to kind of stay mm-hmm. with his friends. I didn't know if it was because of Egwene or whatever, or he didn't actually. They've sort of been playing yes, at this notion that he doesn't yeah. fully care about his wife and he's trying to convince himself that he did love her. So that seems mm-hmm. to be like underlying this. Yes. So I'm wondering if that's yeah, like a big so dynamic odd. there. Because Machin Shin tells him you wanted Layla dead out of the way so that yeah. you could have her and the camera pans over to a Gwen version in there. Yeah. And it tells Rand she will never love you as much as you love her um, related mm-hmm. to Egwene. Because one thing that we haven't had, because well, Rand does obsess over this a lot in the book because Min tells him very early on that that they're not fated to be together, that Egwene is not for him nor he for her is the, when, when Main meets him in, when Min meets him in Berlin. Um, and so, but here he hasn't had that. There's definitely been a lot of tension between them throughout the season come, coming to a head here. Um, and yeah, with Perrin, Perrin as well, I guess. Yeah, the Layla stuff, I'm still not sure about. But yeah, I guess the implication, we knew that they were in kind of a, it seemed like it was a loveless marriage on her part. Like she she clearly did not love him. They established in those few opening scenes, she was still alive. We had the classic, he tells her he lo- loves her and she like doesn't even really do an I know <laughs> kind of equivalent. Uh, I was there. really confused by that because I uh-huh. she is she is an invented character for the show. I'm not misremembering that, correct? Correct. And yep. and I I I thought that what her purpose was, and I thought it was effective if somewhat underhanded in the in the classic like I think they call it fridging when a yeah when a love yep. interest has to be killed. I thought they were just using her almost solely to tease the fact that Perrin very frequently struggles with self-control in combat scenarios as part of his whole uh, like link with wolves. Mm. And I thought they were just huh. trying to, to get mm. that in as early as they could. Um, but I, I really, I'm kind of, I am very confused by her and the fact that she is like a lingering presence in the show. Um, yeah, it is, it is 
is odd. Hmm. I like that commentary on kind of the control aspect because it could be both. I, I I didn't put that together, but yeah, he does seem to be kind of like he, when he goes into that wolf-like state, kind of losing some inhibitions there. So that's that's interesting. Mm-hmm. I do, did anyone we- notice like Rand's like almost like maniacal smile he had there? Like I kind of like them teasing that, like when he kind of, when it dawns on him that Perrin likes oh, him. Oh, yes, has this yeah. Really, it's cruel. It's cruel. Yeah, it's very cruel. It's yes. like this nasty stare where he's like, he almost like is like kind of looking down upon his friend thinking he wasn't worthy mm-hmm. enough to like like she doesn't like you like he's almost yeah. like taunting him though like oh yeah like i don't know huh. i thought it was it was pretty mean but it also sets up for in the future Rand becoming this like really yeah. awful character yeah and yeah. struggling like, if this is a rivalry you have no chance yeah mm-hmm. okay. yeah yeah it was mean <laughs> particularly foreshadowing a, a vulnerability to psychological conflict as all male <laughs> channelers have yeah mm. which uh well, man, speaking of major reveals to get to in this episode, maybe this kind of ties into the fact that we have not seen possessed Rand at any point in the show, as far as we know, because that's a major feature of the eye of the world that he at various points has taken over by this sort of very different personality who does kind of creepy smiling and laughing at people and and taunting, and, yeah. and and yeah, and taunting the white cloaks and escalating situations and dancing atop the um the the mast on the ship uh, on on the spray and everything we haven't once seen that uh, and we haven't seen any inkling of Rand stuff because we're gonna get to a montage later in this episode I guess where we find out here's what was going on all along that they were trying to save the the Rand reveal in some sense of well what because everybody else has their thing so far their thing that is weird or different about each each of these Taverin. Um, before that, we have more scenes with Moraine and Lan establishing a thread I have really liked in the show of, of really bringing to the front how much Moraine cares for Lan and does not want him to die along with her on what she sees as her fated quest. Oh, that oh, that's maybe worth mentioning. Min tells her that uh, Swan Sanche that or the, or no, Min tells her the Amarlin seat will be her downfall, I think is what she yeah, says, which is yeah, yeah which but is also, also vague. <laughs> it kind of harkens back to the sneaky way um, she seems to create a loophole in her vow she takes on the oath rod by not saying she will obey the Amarlin seat by saying she will obey Suwan. Mm. So I oh, think it's, wow, good call, good call, pull on there. I did yes. not notice that. I th- I think it's I think it's meant to kind of hammer home that there is they're both important to each other, but there is a distinction between Suwan and the Amarlin seat because it's a transferable mm. title. Hmm. And also a chair. Yes. <laughs> we, had, we had to firmly establish that for the audience. Uh, um, and, and handing off, it's, well, handing off in several ways, the land relationship with Moraine scene here is land going to visit uh, a, a local family who are maybe, I think, also from, from Malkir, like yeah. other survivors, other Malkiri survivors. And, you know, this very warm, like this is the da- welcoming him as Daishan and having this meal. And Nynaeve follows and looking out from the inside. And then Lan kind of Batman teleports the second she looks away and Lan is sta- standing. That aggravated um, me. <laughs> yeah, behind her. Also. Right, right. What did he have to do to get there? He, had, he must have like had to shove himself up from the table and yeah. just launch himself <laughs> down the back of the house and run out around the house so to come jarring. out the alley. And, the like, editing like, was so bad. <laughs> how did he explain that to the people he was having dinner? It's like, hold on, I really need to impress this girl. <laughs> he just breaks through a window. Yeah. <laughs> silently, totally silently. It, it was so abrupt, I actually assumed 
the first time that I saw it, I had to rewind. I assumed that perhaps Nynaeve had been indulging in a sort of fantasy, like she mm-hmm. hadn't actually followed him yet, and yes, she was imagining yeah. where he could have been and sort of fantasizing oh, about huh. somebody she was romantically interested in. But then exactly. it was real, because then they, they actually go inside. So yeah, mm-hmm. I I do like... I, I, I did like the scene of showing a warmer side to Lan, who is, like, extremely laconic. Um, but, I yeah, the editing was kind of, like, fighting that scene there. It almost reminded me, I don't know why, maybe it's because of the holidays, but, like, Christmas story and, like, or, um, <laughs> like Scrooge everything and kind of, like, the, yeah, the ghost yeah. and everything, like, staring in at, like, the family. I don't know why, but her, like, just creepy. <laughs> yeah, yep. Like, having their meal is just, like, a very Scrooge moment for 90. And, uh... The big, the big difference between how this plays out between the two of them here and in Eye of the World, we've talked about how they've accelerated these character, all the characters a lot in terms of development and accelerated where their relationships go. One of the big things at the end of Eye of the World is, is Nynaeve confessing her, her love for Lan. Rand kind of o- overhears this and Lan admits that he also loves her, but they can't be together because he's fated to die and, and he doesn't want her to share that fate. And he's too, he's too sad and Aragorn-y and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and, uh, and here... Nynaeve doesn't take a shut door uh, for an answer. She comes in and, and you know, like makes him face this point blank and, and ask and, and sort of, I don't remember the exact dialogue because uh, the dialogue wasn't really the critical thing so much as her coming in on, on shirtless uh, Daniel Henney here um, and asking him if, if he wants her as much as she wants him. And we get... Uh, Cut away from from uh, sex scene here to the uh, anybody else have any 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 other things we want to say about Lan and Nynaeve before they mostly go in the background the rest of this episode because we go to some Can other we... very big stuff. <laughs> I would only point out that I think that there is as much effort from Lan in that encounter as there is from Nynaeve because like he probably would have anticipated if he knew that she was watching him from outside a window and could teleport mm-hmm. behind her. I think he knew she would come in and he like set up really excellent three-point lighting to accentuate his, his physique. Like, he ran in, arranged the room, and then contrived to be shirtless. I think they're showing that these are two people who are like, they know that their their deaths are probably never at any given point from now for the rest of their lives going to be too far away or within their complete control. And they're they're convincing each other and themselves to to indulge in this. Yeah, yeah. But from an, an aesthetic perspective, can we, it is refreshing that usually, especially fantasy, always has like the lingering shots. Like it's it's always the woman who has to be like they they switch the dynamic with Wheel of Time, like the show version, where it's usually like the women that are stripped down all the time and are getting like flashed. Like like you have like the Princess Leia's of the world and all that, and it's always like the women. So it's it's kind of refreshing that Land is like the shirtless one all the time, and now the the trope is having these really hot guys that are always like kind of stripping down in fantasy <laughs> yes because there's always like women getting kind of exploited for that it's like the female characters wore nothing but in the scene Nynaeve has her clothes on in like both shots it's always like land is like the stripped down one usually whereas like in the past when they filmed these kind of dynamics it was always like the guy mm-hmm. always wearing clothing and the woman has nothing on ever so like they've kind of reversed that it's a little refreshing to see kind of a shift there we have a great cultural debt to the Witcher for introducing the bathtub mm. trope. <laughs> the bathtub, yeah. It's true, yeah. That that scene in episode one had to be a Witcher homage, right? It had With, to, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, actually, Dan, I forgot from that GQ interview, uh, Daniel Handy had said that this was actually the most challenging aspect of the entire production for him. The fact that, <laughs> that the show, the fact that the show took place in Prague and he, and then he found out once they got there that he had to do all the, the, all the shirtless scenes and like, and you know, like had to keep up his like jacked body. And then everywhere he went in Prague, he's like, it's impossible to find a salad in this city. Everything <laughs> is like meat, meat and potatoes and like giant starchy meals. And I've, I've put on 30 pounds since I 
I've been here in the production, and I've got to cut down for my oh. uh, for my shirtless moments and, and talking about like what an effort it was for for all the cast to remain uh, in their Hollywood uh, model bodies, basically <laughs> um, when there's no sweet green around or whatever else they were oh they were calling Oof. out. Because um, and speak, speaking of the male models on this show, we get to uh, rant to Joshua Stradowski doing this is the first time the show is like sort of linked to the void and the eye thing he or the void and the flame thing he's doing for archery uh at all uh with um specifically with 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 tam and his background and rand is like archery practicing concentrating on the void and the flame putting all his all his emotions into it from these prior scenes um it's interrupted briefly by Egwene showing up and having what I thought was a pretty touching moment and a much, much better version of their reconciliation here. And and Egwene saying, I don't want to I don't want to leave you. I, I'm not I don't want to become an Aes Sedai if I can't be with you. And then Rand being like, but I'll, uh, but every Aes Sedai needs a warder and I'll come with you. I, I, I actually thought this was pretty sweet. I don't know how it landed for all of you. This, uh, this little their romance moment of the episode. I liked it. Yeah, I liked it. I just think we're getting too. it was the, the pacing of the show. Well, it's like we had some action in the beginning but then it spends too much time kind of building up like oh this is the penultimate episode so we got to have everyone kind mm-hmm. of have these dramatic moments some that resolve in the episode some that are lingering from the past but it almost felt too orchestrated to kind of have everyone wrap up their emotional arcs or get them along mm-hmm. the way further and it's just like one to the next and i would have liked right. the, some, yeah. something to break those up because it's just like bouncing between those different like reconciliation moments between the characters oh my god this is this is the bioware rpg uh <laughs> Catching up with all your your relationships at the camp before going into the final well, battle, isn't it? I yeah. thought it was. I thought it was kind of interesting as a mixed a mixture of sincerity from Rand gesturing that he's willing to concede to Egwene's version of her own future, which he very very visibly before was not comfortable with and had some resentment mm-hmm. about, but also yeah. sort mm-hmm. of maybe almost resigned because I think at this point he knows he's going to do his whole reckless. I will go ahead alone because I've figured out that it's me, mm. and I. Th- yeah. I I thought maybe maybe I was reading too much into it. I thought I picked up that he was he he was consciously trying to put a nice bow on the end of their their arc together because he oh, he knew true. something she did. Yeah, he's saying yeah. goodbye. You mean yeah. yeah yeah you're right. I didn't realize that at the moment because they actually don't do the reveal until the very very end of the episode uh, or close to close like it's like two or three scenes from now where he where you find out that he knows yeah. it's after after he and Egwene sleep together and he wakes up and goes back to archery. I forget he does that again. He goes back to archery and then and then to Min. <laughs> um, Oh, we, we're interrupted by, I, I was wrong. We're interrupted by another Land and Nynaeve scene where he tells her, her his whole Malkyrie backstory. It's pretty much the same as the book that we get from yeah. Lord Egomar. I don't know if we need to go into all that lore, all that la- like last Lord of the Seven Towers stuff. That That's pretty much brought fully intact from Eye of the World. And then we get back to Stradowski getting out of bed with Egwene, going back to archery. And uh, we get the flashbacks. Uh, he We get him... Um, going to Min to find out if he's the dragon, um, which then launches into um, the Aiel flashback again uh, and the baby, because uh, she's revealing she saw a baby born on the slopes of Dragonmount, and this is where we see young Tam, um, CGI transplanted Macklehatton face uh, in, in delivering baby Rand, and we find out that is baby Rand, confirmed here for, for first time show watchers here, um, and then his Aiel mother dies, played by Magdalena uh, Satova, 
And yeah, and then we see all these, this whole sequence of flashbacks of Rand was channeled. Rand is not only did he um, not only did he know something was up. Yeah, he's known he was channeling throughout this whole adventure in a way that he did not in Eye of the World. Actually, it's Moraine who has to tell this to him when she and and she doesn't even know it until for sure until after the Eye of the World scene, right? Until after the final battle of the book. I think so, yeah. Yeah, but she also didn't spend nearly as much time in the books with Rand as she does in the show, whereas, like, there's so Mm. much of the book spent where Moraine is off in another, like, they're off doing their thing, and then it's Matt Matt and uh, Rand traveling with Tom, and that's, a lot of that's not in the the show at all. They kind of join back up a lot quicker because of the pacing. So, what do we we think? Is the show confirming, uh, or or is this going to be another redirect in, in whether Rand is actually the dragon reborn here? They have spent so much time fainting at who could be the dragon throughout the season and then raising that possibility and that threw us for a wild loop about the possibility that the of a split five headed dragon and then that they all could be um, and, and Keeley's uh, belief that they're, they're really heading in that direction of that they're all going to have to combine their ability in some way, which maybe ties into Matt's not with them. So that fails in some way when the four of them try to defeat the Dark One at Sheogul next week. Uh, in the mm. finale episode. But what we're set up for is a very interesting twist, I thought. This is this is dramatically pretty cool of both Moraine and Rand wanting, and Moraine especially wanting to spare Lan and Rand wanting to spare his friends of him coming to her early in the morning, pre-dawn, and being like, I know it's me, here's why, let's go. Let's go do this alone. And they run off together. And again, Moraine looking her hair more wild and her makeup less done than we have ever seen as she is getting to this point of probably thinking that the two of them are on a suicide mission to the eye here to go and finish this alone without the others and heading into the blight. What, what do we think? Are they, is it more misdirection? Is it just going to be exactly the same as the books? Rand is the, or the exactly the same as the eye of the world by the end. Um, and that Rand does it all alone, or we think they're leaning more towards, uh, there is something else going on here and they need all, because this was a major complaint that, uh, that Katie and, and I think Keely and Dan, you to some extent raised about the eye of the world ending that ever, that they're all spectators in that final moment while Rolf Rand just goes and, you know, draws on the eye and does his teleporting around, fixing problems and blasting the army and blasting Baalsmon thing. Are, are the rest of them going to have to come to the rescue here in some way? Uh, or or is it, is it going to change that final confrontation? Because we don't even know Baalsmon in the show so far. Yeah, it's no. been pretty. Can we, I can, I'm curious, can we go around? I, I, what's everyone's predictions for like how, like for the next episode? Like, are there any major things you can kind of foresee coming or that you, you'd expect them to do or think they're going to head in? I mean, I... It's inconceivable that they won't enhance the teamwork aspect, whether or not they're going to go this whole route of them all jointly being the dragon split into five people, which I really have to, like, interrogate my feelings to that because I had a... Mm -hmm. My knee-jerk reaction is don't do that. It seems more complicated than necessary. Um, But, like, I mean, logically, there's... I I can't really say that I have a good reason other than that. It's not the same as the book and I don't like it. I'll admit an, an own sort of, like, unexamined bias there that doesn't have a, a very articulate face on it. But I, it's, yeah, to your point, there's there's no universe in which they don't fix the problem that everybody just watches Rand do something. They're all going to kind of Captain Planet together somehow. And it probably will, just as you say, not be entirely successful, specifically because Matt's not there to use mm. the power of theft or whatever it is. That at, at this at this point he brings to the table. There is one scene I'm hoping they work in because it's the last episode in the season, and be, and I have hope that they'll include it because 
they put a flashback at the beginning of this one is I really want to see brought to life the prologue of the Eye of the World mm. where you see Luz Theron yeah. stricken with grief creating Dragon Mount. That is like, that was what I hoped they were going to open this season with. And I don't know if any of you guys have seen this, but when they were still trying to, whoever had the rights before Amazon began making this, uh-huh. made that absolutely doomed fate-like futile gesture pilot with Billy Zane and that's the scene they chose mm-hmm. and I've we'll always have loved it. I've always I, I don't recommend watching it it's just a fascinating piece of like of TV history because they only made that pilot because their agreement with the estate was we re- we retain the rights as long as we have done something with it within this time frame yeah and they, and they made, aired it at like one or two in the morning yeah, or something Eastern yeah. to make sure nobody watched it because <laughs> it was just it was just execrable but they had to do it for legal reasons but they yeah, picked yeah. They picked the one scene that I was like, I've always loved this scene from the books. It was a really strong opening. Um, and you, you aren't the yeah. only one, too. I've seen a lot of fans comment mm-hmm. in different forums and yeah. um, comment sections that uh, they were disappointed that they had changed the opening of the whole show to be like that new scene capturing Loghain versus uh, having this prologue sequence. Mm. Yeah. Was that? They did make mm-hmm. an animatic of it. There is an animated version of it on, on Amazon Prime. Yeah. But I'm hoping since, since they had this flashback that maybe during the actual conflict when Rand taps into the eye of the world and channels that maybe he'll have this flashback to being mm. Luz Theron, absolutely losing his mind and drawing in this absurd amount of the power and destroying himself. Mm. Um, I just had another thought and I completely forgot what it was. Well, while you're thinking of that thought, I'm a little scared. Green Man's not going to show up at all in the show. Like they haven't mentioned what? him. Yeah. I, oh, I can see that. They haven't mentioned cut. him? No, they not even, they, him this not even remotely. All. It's so sad. Oh. We, were, we were trying to envision what like in the last week's episode of the podcast. Yeah. We spent a lot of time trying to like think about ways they could envision him. And I'm like, they might just like cut him completely. Oh. Yeah. They, they may. For, for budgetary reasons, oh, if nothing no. else. They keep what they More were like, c- fewer CGI characters. They're they're saving for a Trolloc army, right? They have to yeah. do at least the tro- the tro- the Shadow Spawn army with the no, drag they, cars. No, they didn't mention that them. either. So they're not even going to because lo- like um the kings like of, of um I'm spacing on the location and his name right now, but they go off. Lord Agomar. Yep. Lord Agomar goes off and has that fight. They didn't mention that at all this episode. So I think they're nixing having that fight happen at all. They're, I think they're going to attack. I think the next episode is going to open with the Trollocs, with the Shadow Spawn attacking because Padden Fane is there in in Faldara. He's been leading the Trollocs through the ways, and and he's now here to let the Fades know that the party is in the ways, and they are going to come down like an army, and they're going to have to defend at at the hmm. pass. I think they're still going to do that. I think that's yeah. that's oh, the whole they, point of bringing Pad and Fame back in at this point. Maybe hmm. they do a split. Then so I didn't think about yeah. that at all. But oh. Maybe they do Perrin and Egwene yes. helping with like and um, uh, Nynaeve yeah. being the one who has to use her like bubble force field thing to like repel the armies. But they could do that. I just <laughs> I'm so annoyed because I feel like every time we think they're going to do something cool and creative, they all the show <laughs> the show story always takes the least like budget uh restrictive mm. way of doing things in a lot of not not like, always but yeah I, I, most I of the time they, yeah. i feel like they avoid having large sequences large shots and they they go mm-hmm. like whatever is the cheapest way like having a lot of like like yes. monologue and kind of like character connection yeah. moments that don't cost a lot to produce and they spend like 30 minutes of the episode doing that and then 10 minutes of the episode so like i think they're just gonna be i know but like they, they i were, feel like, like that's not talking their problem, about the, the budget and everything though i feel like, like money isn't their problem I because I because there's plenty of series that don't have a lot of money that do awesome things with very little money 
like there there's just little things that they can change like you know we're talking about having like absurd choreography and a pregnant woman mm-hmm. is it's not a, that's not a money problem yeah no but it does feel like i don't know i wish i didn't have this feeling but like like i don't get this with like the expanse and other shows too where i constantly feel like they're kind of dipping away from doing things because of budgets and i'm like it's in the back mm-hmm. of my brain all the time i'm like are they gonna make this as cool as it could be or are they gonna like kind of cheap out on it like and go like the dialogue heavy yeah. route and i don't know i'd like to see some more action pieces kind of making like, the pragmatic instead of the creative decision yeah mm-hmm. it, i'm it's optimistic kind of, about it though uh, because when i've i recently we re-watched game of thrones season one because somebody told me like please check all your expectations about the first season of wheel of time until after you've revisited game of thrones because i tend to conflate the production value across seasons yeah yeah and there, there's great disparity <laughs> like that that was hard-earned mm-hmm. what they ended up the money they ended up being given and the the resources they they had at their disposal they had to fight for that yeah and i believe that we only know the budget for the first episode of wheel of time which was their most most product that was their most CGI heavy by far and it had like a lot of trollocks and full costume and everything that one was about a 10 million dollar budget and that included the burning down the village and everything the game of thrones unaired pilot for the prequel from a few years ago was given it was either 25 or 30 million dollars for their pilot oh uh, on, on on hbo and they didn't even air that hbo decided it was crap and they couldn't do it and they went a whole different direction and they're now doing the dragons or the uh, the the targaryen prequel but you know so the what game of thrones was going to have for a pilot to work with was already three times the budget of the most expensive wheel of time episode so i think the show has money in it i don't think it has anything like the money of like what we've been told of like lord of the rings is you know they're spending a half a billion dollars on the lord of the rings prequel that amazon's doing including the rights which i think costs them a significant chunk of change in in the beginning but i suspect most of these episodes are made on a frack on like you said andrew much more like early (laughs) game of thrones budget like a couple million an episode maybe more than more than that you know 30, I think Andrew, Andrew's point, though, I think is yeah. still well taken. I think Loyal yeah. is a really good example of yes. that. I mean, yeah. he's his makeup is just underwhelming. I think the only thing I dislike about Loyal outright, I think it's a bit underwhelming. I, I heard somebody compa- compare him sort of to like a Klingon about how, how minimalist it is. <laughs> that the, was me. The yeah. only thing that seems out of place is the mop of hair. And I get why they're doing that is because they have like traditionally Western fantasy is overwhelmingly Eurocentric. So they're having like yeah. the ethnic diversity across the board, including a non-human species, um, having more diverse physical features. I liked it. It just seems like it, it just it just screams I am a wig whenever I see it because <laughs> like the color is a little strange the way it sits on his head is a little strange I was just like why I wonder how that decision came about well I can I can actually like I can share in our chat and everything but if you go to there's concept art um, that Keely actually shared mm-hmm. with me this morning for Loyal and he yeah definitely feels close, more right? Afrocentric yeah and it was like the the Afro inspired like it, it's close but the, it doesn't look like a wig and it kind of fits the character art a lot better mm. so like it kind of grew out of that I can see it just being kind of like a cheaper costume compared to what the concept yeah. art had but they were mm. to your Again, point Andrew they're trying, the to, trying to make yeah. it less Eurocentric so like yeah I, I get I, that yeah and I like, so, like that I, I just feel like they they didn't they quite they kind of fumbled in the 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 gap between the concept art and making mm-hmm. that hairpiece i agree yeah but the when i saw that i kind of had a little more sympathy because i was like okay this is a cool direction like i kind of was like repulsed by like my expectations of like this huge cg creature versus what we mm-hmm. actually got with the makeup 
one thing, because I recently rewatched a series, and not to completely derail, but this this sort of completes my point about series that do not have a lot of money. Um, mm-hmm. There's a series called Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, which is about... Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Love that book. That. Yeah. <laughs> if the, the adaptation that the BBC made for TV is superb. Um, yeah, it is. Re- really well done. And not a lot of money. And they choose their moments very wisely about how they do it. And they choose how they adapt things with like costuming very well, mm-hmm. for the most part. There's a couple of moments of like very weird hot topic fairies kind of voguing <laughs> yeah. around that I that I was less than fond of. But for the most part, they really capitalize on not having a lot of money. But but, but that's yeah. also a series where magic is largely invisible and subtle, yeah. for instance. Yeah, although there are not some, something... There's some really great moments like the sand horses yeah. and um, uh, the the phantom ships conjured. True. They do skip the storm, right? Like they don't show the, the summoning of the storm. No, but itself, they sort of but... they sort of replace that with a moment later in the Battle of Waterloo. Um, mm. But yeah, but w- one thing, just my last comment, not to, to monopolize the conversation. One thing about Loyal's makeup that I have nothing but praise for is there was a moment where he smiled at Rand and I noticed he had a different number of teeth than humans have. And it was mm. very subtle and very well done. It didn't look like he was mm. wearing dentures. It looked like he just had very much larger and fewer teeth than a human did and they were obviously a herbivore's teeth which was cool there were no canines oh interesting so i thought that was really subtle and really well handled and you you just see him smile and you're like oh wow that's neat that's pretty neat yeah, that yeah, is cool. I hope we get a lot more of him in, in season two also, because yeah. he, he's he's felt like he's had, by necessity, with the way the plot's moving, he's just only had a few scenes yeah. here and there and mm-hmm. doesn't get a lot of the character drama dialogue because he's uh, not really, you know, he's not much of a source of, of interpersonal drama. He's such a <laughs> personality. Yeah. But what about you, Eric? Do you, have, do you have predictions for the finale coming up next week, uh, right before Christmas? Well, I think certainly there would have to be a Trolloc army between... Uh, Nynaeve, Lan, and um, Randon, uh, and Moraine in order mm. for them to not be at the eye of the world with them. Uh, because I think it would, I mean, it really would betray their characters if they didn't try to get there. Um, so I, I don't know. But I I think if they're all at the eye of the world, that would be exciting. And I think it also would be exciting if there were um, a big battle kind of um, at the same time. That would effectively, again, be the Gondor thing, right? Of half yeah. the crew, mm-hmm. like like holding the pass outside Mordor to draw draw the Dark Lord's oh, yeah. attention while while the uh, the smaller really group sne- sneaks into uh, to Mount Doom. And, um, Andrew, a huge prediction, like from something Andrew said earlier in this episode, um, that now I'm wondering if it's going to be swapped, like a character swap. So Pat and Fane being ju- like kind of skipping through the gates and kind of having more of a, a presence to him than like a Gollum aspect that we were talking about a little earlier in this call i wonder if pat and fane is going to replace agnor and Baphomel. if they're not going to introduce those two characters oh. yet oh uh, and if he pat and fane's going to take his spot because he seems to be much more composed than he was in the book yeah. and i wonder if he's going to be this like mm-hmm. antagonist character that because he didn't do anything this episode they didn't capture him they didn't interrogate him nope. i wonder if he's going to show up in the last episode as like the big bad of the this, this season you've got to be right because otherwise next mm. season when they start up no one's going to remember who he is because he's exactly such an, he's such an elusive corner of your eye press presence in several scenes throughout the season yeah i think i think you're dead on that's a good call i didn't think about it until you just talked about him being in a completely different condition than he was in the book like it didn't dawn on me but then when you said that i was thinking Mm. through and i was like they didn't do anything with him this episode so there he has to be the big reveal tomorrow like in next week's episode although i could i I think that seems really likely to me and really probable that he's going to get his highlight moment though i could also see to your point of the prologue dragon mount 
Andrew, if if the next episode opens with like a 15 minute prologue of Luz Theron at Dragomount, that is also ample opportunity for a lot of dialogue with Baalzaman and introducing him as a speaking presence and personality and his antagonism with Luz Theron, since we haven't had that in any of the dream sequences in the show. He's always mm. just like a vague um, yeah, a kind of really plain-looking, red-eyed, yeah. Roswell <laughs> yeah. alien-looking guy. Like, not a big fan yeah. of that. I guess yeah. it's like yeah. the, maybe the hardest thing ever, though, is making a character that looks menacing without looking cheap and just like, oh, it was mm-hmm. designed at, by an AI that spits out scary guys. So, like, I I can only sympathize with whoever had the unenviable task of design the dark one. Yeah course it's hard yeah but caleb even you put the dots together you said he would have had to channel to get through the waste so that even gives yeah. it further like mm. evidence that like mm-hmm. you, you guys were putting the dots together in the episode and then it just was like a light bulb moment where i'm like wait caleb's saying he mm-hmm. has to be able to channel to get, to get through, the, through the ways and then andrew's pointing out that like like kind of bringing him up and kind of his persona difference and then they didn't do anything with him so i was like all those like it was just like a connection there i'm like wait a minute mm-hmm. he he has to be a channeler then and they're going to change it so he's fighting moraine at the end right. and Maybe, maybe rather than just having twisted his mind, the dark one is actually possessing him. And that's why, like, is he going to be? Because even in the books, it feels kind of tacked on at the end where they bring in these two really powerful villains that have not been discussed at all leading up to Mm. that. Whereas this would actually be that would be clever writing to have it be like this reveal that this like peddler in the first episode is actually kind of like revealed to be kind of a a huge, um, like almost like Dark Lord servant. Yeah. yeah, and maybe Harriet McDougal is on staff after all. <laughs> she is, she is, yeah. <laughs> she gets a producer credit, I believe, at the end of every at the end mm. of every episode on here. Um, and she she's actually talked about how that she's had a, or at least publicly has said she's she's really enjoyed working with Rafe, and they've brought her in at various points to give her opinion on the scripts and everything. And at least publicly, she seems to be really fond of where they're going with the series and how they're adapting it. Um, which, uh, yeah, I guess we'll find out for sure next time when we are watching the finale and then taking a little bit of a break for the holidays. So we'll we'll see how things go with that big episode. I'm curious if they'll cram it all in an hour, if we're going to get like a 90-minute thing or, or something. Uh, find out next time. This episode of Wadcast was produced by yours truly. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Caleb Wimble. Dan, where can people find you? You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Pansy Dan. Eric and Andrew, it has been awesome having you this week and coming on to chat with you about, about the theory crafting and what we thought of this episode uh, thanks very much for for stepping in and joining us here thank you thank you remember you can find us all at wattcast.net follow us on twitter and facebook at wattcast podcast and support the show at patreon.com slash wattcast your support means a lot however just as much as monetary support uh, your moral and social support matters uh, arguably even more if you leave us a five-star review on apple podcast or your podcast platform of choice That helps so much in bringing in new listeners or even just uh, sharing an episode on social. You can very easily, uh, even if you don't think you have that many, you know, friends who might be interested in the Wheel of Time, maybe maybe it turns out you have more than you do because every single time somebody shares, we get a, a huge spike in listenership. Uh, It's really great to see. Tell a friend about the show. Uh, And that's going to be all for us today. Thanks so much for listening, folks. Remember, this is not the ending. There are neither beginnings nor endings to the turning of the wheel of time, but this is an ending. Farewell.
Awesome. Yeah. Th thanks for coming on, guys. This was this was a fun uh, put it together last minute crew to get going on here. Thank you. Yeah, that's fun. To talk about with with people who really like it. I don't. I on, in my immediate friend group, I barely know anyone who's read the entire series or even the first book. <laughs> it's, it's it's a lot to get through. My brother just started because he has a crush on a girl who really likes the Wheel of Time. Ah, that's the same him. reason I did it. <laughs> it's, a good, it's a good reason because it will compel you to make your way through some of the early game stuff because it really does get so good. Yeah, I'm excited for the later books. I, I think it picked up a lot after the first half of Eye of the World, so I'm what's, excited for the second one. What's your What's your favorite, Andrew, out of the series? Do you remember? I mean, there are moments I remember being stuff that stood out to me as like, yeah, this is why I love this series. I think the book where I really started to love it and it was no longer just my older brother cajoling me and <laughs> continuing was the, is the Dragon Reborn the fourth, the fourth one? No, that's the Shadow Rising is the, four, the fourth one, the, the big one. So, uh, so which one is the Dragon, Dragon Reborn is the third book. That, that's where I really started to be like, yeah, I love this. But I mean, there, there are certainly standout moments. One of them didn't make it into the show was I really love the moment in the first book when Rand sort of Taviran like bumbles his way into the court of Andor. Yes, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's a great and, scene. Yeah. And it first explains something that I thought they could have done instead of CGing young Tamil Thor's face on, if they had explained how rare Heron Mark swords were, seeing mm -hmm. the Heron Mark on his sword yeah. um, pointed at the Aeol woman would have been enough to connect them. But I really love that scene in the first book where he's he's insisting he's just a nobody, and then someone points out that he's carrying a blade master's weapon, and immediately the atmosphere of the whole scene shifts. I really love that whole scene. It's really good world building. Yeah, they've only barely gestured at that in the show. They showed like the Heron Mark briefly this episode, and they showed the mostly to know so you knew it was Tam's sword at the beginning. But it's not really been mentioned at all, has it? What a what a Heron marked blade wielder is. I don't think they have, and I if I'm not mistaken, does Lan, is Lan's sword also Heron marked? Because I know Lan is a wow. is a blade master because he's one of the people who sits in judgment of other characters later in the series as they are given that title. Um, but I don't know if if Lan ostensibly keeps one as an identifier because it is something. It's voluntary he, he, he he does not because his is a, a sword of the Malkiri kings oh, yeah. have, like yeah, have he has a special sword. Thing. Yeah. yeah so it'd be sort of like oh yeah it's a given he's he's one of the king, the kings of Malkir of course he's supposed to be a blade master their whole job is to is to fight fades yeah it reminds me of something i've noticed in the show um i'm going to see if i can find a picture of it in the show the the handguard of his sword has an interesting projecting shape on it that i think and i you only really notice it when it's in his sheath but i think it's it's inspired by real japanese swords have a spot in the handguard talking about land or rand land Land specifically, Japanese swords have a spot in the handguard where a set of hand tools for keeping your hair neat can project through and be stored in the handguard. Huh. So if you look at that small, if you look at it, the tsuba, the handguard on his sword, there's a small vertical peg. Oh, coming. yeah. In a real Japanese sword, there's a there's a socket there where anything from really nice chopsticks to tools for combing your hair can be stored. Huh. And it's interesting. I'm wondering if that's what that is or if that's just a piece of the sheath that locks in because it's on his back. Anyway, that's, it looks like it. That's my nerd moment. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> the deal with his very interesting handguard on his sword. Yeah, yeah. Um, so. I'm sure, we'll be seeing a lot more of that sword next week. Yeah. Do you guys want to join on at all? For well, actually, Andrew, you're going to probably be back with your mom, right? We're doing for the final episode. We're doing like a, a last call for this season. 
of Wattcast for I think what Christmas Eve you said, Kelp. Yeah, uh, uh, relied on for that. Yeah, we f- we figured it's gonna most people wouldn't be. It's gonna yeah Chris, Christmas it's Eve, tough call, yeah. like yeah, around um, three or four p.m. your time. Yeah, yeah my, it's gonna be tough my for most time at home is gonna be a black hole. My mom has been making me watch this very hot new Christian TV show called The Chosen, which apparently like it's it's very it's very well known. Apparently, it got ten million dollars in crowdfunding to make it, uh, which is like pretty impressive for any crowdfunding thing although slightly cheapened by the fact that you can put jesus on anything and reap in absurds amount <laughs> joel austin being the like the crown example of how easy it is to to crowdfund anything but uh it isn't the worst show i've ever seen and i know that they're going to have a christmas episode so i'm sure i'm going to be <laughs> <laughs> I'm Ooh, sure I'm going to be forced that. to watch that. Is it going to be like a flashback because they started with him as an adult or something? Yeah, they, they start with him as an adult in his ministry. So they're probably going to have a flashback and it's probably mm. going to like, it's, it is very amusing. I'll say this. I, overall, I would never have chosen to watch it if my mother hadn't made me like as a request, like, please watch <laughs> this with me. I don't completely resent having been made to watch it because it just kind of drove me further into my own convictions about, you know, like the Christian, <laughs> um, but one thing I it has been tremendously gratifying is hearing all of my hyper dogmatic Catholic relatives object strenuously to the smallest deviations from what they've been taught. They were like, at one point, Mary makes a joke about being pregnant out of wedlock, and they're like, she would never have done that. I was like, what? <laughs> how the fuck do you know? Oh, because this is this is a, pro- a Protestant show, right? Yeah, it looks it's like an I'm evangelical looking- Christian oh. show. It's it's uh, May written written directed and produced by Dallas Jenkins, who is, is the son the son of Jerry B. Jenkins of of oh. uh, Left Behind. Thing. Oh my oh. God. Oh God, that is that's a God. that's a family the legacy right series. there. <laughs> yeah, I gotta say, I gotta say, not the worst series I've ever seen. Although it did do some things I strongly object to. For instance, it implied that the way a character became possessed by a demon was as a, a sort of PT, PS, PTSD after effect of rape, uh, which I found, I found absolutely... Talk about victim blaming. Jeez. Yeah, I cannot condemn that in the strong enough terms, uh, which well, is just like the very concept of demonic possession as anything other than a way for a culture to understand mental illness is just laughable to me. So it just, I found that part utterly disgusting. But the rest of the show, honestly, I'll give it a good five, five out of ten, honestly. Jesus is... Oh, that's right. That's so funny. I I did not know that's what that show was. I, cause the chosen is the name of a, of a Jewish novel. I really love by Chaim Potok. And I thought that's what this was going to be. Talk about just like taking everything. (laughs) The complete opposite Mm. of that. Yeah. Well, enjoy right. that. Yeah. <laughs> have have fun on uh, on your visual Christmas. Um, oh yeah, yeah. It's be great. All right. have a good rest of the weekend, guys. Yeah, uh, nice talking to you. Bye. Bye.